Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. If you're an employer, you know how challenging it can be to hire, but right now you face even more challenges. Mats and resources, they could relate. They need to hire a seasoned senior Citrix administrator to provide IT support, so they turned to our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter. That's how they found Peter Alcantar Jr. He was laid off during COVID, needed to find another job quickly. Posters resume and ZipRecruiter, they identified him as a great match for the role at Mats and Resources. Hired Peter in less than three weeks. See how ZipRecruiter can help you hire. Try now for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where we continue to, uh, to announce stuff. Joining the Ringer Podcast Network, R2C2, the podcast of CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco. They're coming up in a second after we hear from Pearl Jam later. But uh, this pod's been around for a couple of years. It's excellent. And, uh, and just in general, very excited to have both of them in the Ringer family. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what's going to happen with baseball. We're going to talk uh, basketball stuff. You name it. It's all coming up. Also coming up, Jason Gay, our friend from the Wall Street Journal, one-third of the sports reporters, which we haven't done in a while. We have to, have to bring that one back, by the way. We're going to talk about uh, the pandemic, what it's been like as parents, um, what it's been like as sports fans. And we're going to talk about Regis Philbin who passed away, who was uh, just a really enjoyable guy to have in everybody's life. But Jason had a personal experience with him. He worked with him and, uh, and he came on to talk about that and a whole bunch of other things. So that is all coming up. First, our friends from Pro Jam. All right, R2C2 has joined the uh, Ringer Podcast Network. CC Sabat is here. Ryan Rucco is here. They just recorded their new their new first podcast uh, with Max Scherzer, and I mean we might as well talk about that. We're taping this. It's almost three o'clock Pacific time. CC is pessimistic. What if I if I give you over under nine and a half days left in this baseball season? You go over or under. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going way under that. <laughs> <laughs> under. What I'm would you do? Under. Are you? Would you be done at this point? You would be in your car driving home. Yeah. You know what? I would have. Uh, I keep saying that I would. I wouldn't have um, started, but I know myself. I would have been out there with the guys. I would have been out there with my teammates. But this weekend, like after seeing what's happening now, like the Yankees going to Philly and then staying there two days, not playing, supposed to come home to play tomorrow, but then now we're going to Baltimore. I would have definitely gotten in my car and just drove the fuck home. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing this. Like, like I can't. I, like my 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 shit don't work like that. I, I can't do it. Well, it's starting to happen in football. We're seeing, I I lost some of my Patriots defense today, but I assume <laughs> that. I assume. Don't you guys think in baseball we're gonna just see guys be like, "Hey, man, I'm good. I'm <laughs> out. Just leave and just now. leaving. Yeah. yeah. And that and that's it. You know what? I, I will say, Bill, I would have thought that until we talked to Max Scherzer. Yeah. He had the most Pollyannic view of anybody I, I I think I've heard from yet. Like he's like, Yeah, we knew. I mean, you guys will hear when you hear the episode, but he's like, he's like, Yeah, we we kind of knew we were gonna be dealing with this in you know, some fashion at some point. So we've prepared to this and we feel like we can engineer around it. So it actually 
it made me feel a little better because he's high up with the players union. So it makes me yeah. feel like that may be more of the consensus among the players than I realized it was. Yeah, he, I, he made it. He made it. seem. I mean, I mean, he has a great attitude about it, but he loves baseball. He wants to pitch like he <laughs> yeah. wants to be out there. So he wants this to work. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but, I, you know, I mean, you know, it is what it is. He knows he knows a lot more than I do about it. But just outside looking in, I'm, I'm I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what would it be like to be in that locker room? Especially like, you know, you're in a clubhouse, but people are trying to stay yeah, within but, six feet of each other. You're on planes together. Like, I just, I, I would just think that would be so weird. We spend so much time together on planes. Like, you know, the Yankees, we have breakfast together. Like, we do a lot of things, you know, all together. So to not really have to sit close to your teammates and, like, you know, not be able to to, to really hang out um, seems like it would be super hard. But... Um, like, I mean, you know, like Max was talking about, you, you're here on the episode, you know, guys want this to work. You know, everybody wants to get out there and play. So I'm sure everybody's following protocol as much as they can, but it's hard. Even when I'm down there, um, you know, I got the special assistant job so I can go down to Yankee Stadium and you have to have a mask on all the time, like indoors, you know what I'm saying? So um, that just makes it, a, you know, a little tougher, but it's something that, you know, we can do to, you know, get the season off and, and you know, try to get these fans a, a, a real season. Ryan, CC loves baseball and obviously would talk himself into any scenario. You and I are just fans, although you would do some announcing. Um, have you been shocked by how boring baseball is when you strip away <laughs> a lot of the stuff and it's just 30 seconds between pitches and nothing else happening and nothing else to look at? You know what's funny, man, is I'm I'm actually... I've been surprisingly happy with the crowd bikes and the way they've been or the fake crowd noise and the way they've been pumping it in. So I think that like my focus in between pitches has been more on like, oh, you know what? They kind of nailed that murmur. Like, yeah, that, that sounds like the right crowd murmur. <laughs> right. So, so, so like I've been thinking of it more technically. So I, I've actually I've been good. I, I, I've been enjoying it. But I, you know, I also I, I was actually thinking about it from a, a broadcasting standpoint. I'm like, more than any other sport you do play-by-play -play for. And I do a ton of basketball and I do a good amount of baseball and I'll do some football and I do boxing. Like baseball, you need to have, you know, all this, all these stories and the conversations. And, you, you know, it's only about 10 to 12 minutes of action. So to your point, you take away like the ability to get those stories, to have those conversations for the most part. And then the other stimuli in between pitches. I was thinking about how often we're showing fans, just kind of having fun. I can Some go to guy Paul eating a hot dog yeah, or something. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. I can go to Paul O'Neill, like, oh, Paul, that looks good, doesn't it? Yeah, Ryan, you know, let's get it ordered up to the boot. You know, like, that's gone. So yeah. to your point, yeah, that'll, that would be challenging, like, to be on air during that time, especially. I've noticed the announcers, and you can feel this with the bubble basketball, too. They kind of is the in basketball, they're not there. So they have no feel for how to interact with the game. And in baseball, same thing, but now there's no fans, no noise. It, the announcers are really overcompensating. And they're it's almost like they they feel like they have to fill the air and they're just gonna keep talking. And it's like and it's like I would actually go the other way and scale back. So I'm interested when ESPN and Turner take over when we actually have the real games, we don't have the local announcers anymore. I, I'll be interested to see how they handle that balance, right? Because you yeah. don't want to overpower it, 
but you also need to fill the void. So there's some, there's some it, in between thing. I don't know what it is. Bill, yeah. it is so funny. You mentioned that man. Cause I called the WNBA's opening four games this weekend from studio in Bristol. And I felt exactly what you're talking about. I, I like, I called myself a couple of times. Like I am definitely, and I, I talk a decent amount anyway, but like, I'm like, I'm definitely talking more than I normally would, like, try, <laughs> you know, because and, and in some sense, you're like, well, because you don't want it to sound empty and hollow, right, to the viewer. But in the other sense, where to your point, Bill, laying out could be better is they are hearing sounds of the game and effects that you normally wouldn't be hearing. Right. And there's some yeah. value to that for the for the viewer and for the listener. Less Bill, in baseball. I have, yeah. Have you have you liked the look of the NBA games, though? Because me and Ryan were talking about that on the pod, like. Seems like we're watching like a Broadway show, like in their playing. Like it's it's a weird feel. It's like a it's like a stage almost like set up. You know what I'm saying? I it's worked better than I thought. <laughs> and I think they'll keep tinkering with it. But honestly, it looks like the video game. It looks like the yeah, video game. Yeah, it does. Game. It does. My son yeah. plays 2K all the time. And it really the way they've done it reminds me of that. But you you talk about the ambience, like OKC played the Celtics last week. And the announcers, there was, I don't know why, but there might not have even been an announcers for a quarter and you could just hear this sneaker squeak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But whatever they were doing, I could hear Chris Paul. And my dad was telling me in Boston, it became kind of a story the next day. Like the Celtics weren't vocal enough. Chris Paul was so much more vocal than the Celtics. Do the Celtics have a leadership problem? All from people listening to Chris Paul just yelling at his teammates. And I was like, you know, I'm old enough to remember we had season tickets in the 70s and 80s with the Garden. They're just playing the fucking organ. And that's it. And we could hear, every, we were sitting close, we could hear everything on the court. And I kind of want that to come back. I part of me is thinking like, bring back the organ. We don't need any of the musical cues. Just have like an organist in there, just crank it away. But uh, Cece, you must, I know you're a huge Hoops fan. You must love hearing the guys talking to each other. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that. I mean, in any sport, when you can get like that insight and just hear things that you normally wouldn't as a fan, um, you know, we love that. So yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, I love, and I even love like the, the angles. Like you saw Chris Paul throw a pass on the baseline the other day that he normally wouldn't be able to throw because fans would have been in the way. You know what I'm saying? He got a little more right. space, made mm. that pass on the baseline, and, like, you know, it turned it into a, to a great pass. So that type of stuff, you know, we'll get to see these guys be a lot more creative, you know, without, you know, with having so much space on the court. You know what's you funny know, about that, Bill? Like, there are so many times when I'm doing a game, sitting courtside, and I'll, like, for some reason, at one point or another, maybe I just, like, you know, I take the one ear off, and like you're listening and you're like, oh, man, like I forgot how cool it is. Like when you're hearing all these sounds and the interactions, which like, you know, if you're sitting, even though we have effects maybe to a certain degree in our headset, so you just don't you don't hear them when you're hearing like the game when you're calling it. And you realize and see, you know, you sit courtside all the time, man. Like it's cool hearing them interact like that. So I actually do think that'll be good for the fans hearing some more of that this season. They'll have to tape delay it. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things you pick up. Um, <laughs> Courtside's weird because depending on where you are, it's actually a really uncomfortable vantage point of the game. You 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 can't get a feel for a lot of it, but it makes up for it with the audio experience and hearing the guys mumbling under their breath to the refs because it's such a big part of it. I'm sure baseball is like this too. 
the umps just don't want to be shown up. The referees yeah. don't want to be shown up. But if you're if you're doing like, hey man, that call fucking sucked. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. You're holding your shirt over your mouth. Like you can kind of get away with it, but you could pick up all that stuff. What would you want to hear from baseball, Cece? If the if the mics like, because obviously you have the guy at first base. Yeah, you know what? I would honestly just like they did spring training games this year where the guys were actually mic'd up during their at bats. Like I would love to hear that. I mean, obviously. You know, Britt threw an inning with the with the mic on. Like, I don't know how hard it would be for pitchers, but if we can get like Rizzo with a mic the whole game, like I would pay for that. Like I would, I, you know what I'm saying? Like some of those funny guys in the league, you just get them a mic for the whole game, let them go up to the plate, and you know he plays first base and he's you know real personable. So I think you know if we can get those like how they did in spring training, I think that'd be a lot of fun. Would you have worn a mic? Never. And they would have to bleep everything out. It would have to be tape delayed by two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the best guy ever for that would have been Pedro because he would have been screaming and swearing at everybody for three yeah. and a half straight hours. You would have just oh, heard me yelling at umpires the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we do if baseball goes away? What happens? The NBA like, picks it up for us, man. <laughs> no, but like, as baseball fans, we just... We're going to have like a potentially a 10 day season and then it's just gone. We have no see, champion, nothing. But see, that's why that's why I don't see it happening, Bill, because it's like I, I think now that they've committed to this, like, yeah, granted, I'm sure ideally they were going to avoid, you know, half a team getting it at one time. But I, I think once you're in it, you you kind of have decided I am I'm going through with this unless, you know, whatever you saw some ridiculous amount of cases like you have 150 players, but you know, they just got the results back. Zero of the, the other 29 teams, right, ha had positive, you know, cases. So I just feel like it's going to be a fire drill. But if they're willing to, like, make up the schedule as they go, like they're seemingly doing right now, diverting teams to different cities, I think that shows me that they're just hell-bent on finding a way to play these games, however many they can. And then they'll go to win percentages if they have yeah. to. Yeah, but are you guys good with, like, what if fucking Baltimore plays 35 games and they win a lot of, you know what I'm saying? Like, and the winning percentage is is what it yeah. is and they get into the playoffs. Like, I don't understand, like, how they're going to figure this out. If guy, some teams only play 50 games, other teams play 60, you know, some teams play 52. Like, how's, how are they going to figure this out, man? Like, it just seems It's got to be winning percentage, right? That, yeah, but, uh, I mean. The I thing know. is, because we see this happen with the Premier League, the sample size is so small basically anything can happen in a, mm -hmm. if it's a 50 game season or whatever, yeah. you can just have two people get hurt in a division and one other team gets hot for two weeks. And then, you know, you're, you're, you're flying, Ryan, you're not going to be surprised. I asked CC before you joined us when we, we weren't taping it. I was like, would you, if you won, if you won the title in this weird, goofy season, would that count for you? And he's like, fuck yeah. Absolutely. That's a full title. No asterisk here. No, if you if you play, man, and you play in the playoffs, I don't give a damn what the scenario is, especially this year, because it's gonna be harder this year. This is this this is crazy. It's like uh, unlike any other year we've ever experienced. So you win this, man. You can put an asterisk right. by it, but it's still a fucking title. <laughs> right. In some ways, too, right? Like it's like where it could be harder is you have all these teams, to your point, Bill, that otherwise wouldn't even be factoring in probably that now all of a sudden do factor in like, you know, yeah. if you, even with the expanded playoffs, right. If you have to beat like the blue Jays in a three game series, you know, all, that you could easily lose to them in a three game series and be gone, you know? Yeah. And so right. 
I, I think it will. I think the I think as fans, the only time it may feel delegitimized if, is if we end up with two like weird teams in the World Series that otherwise we don't think ever would have gotten there. And yeah, then, but who, yeah, are those like, weird eh. who are those weird teams, though? You I know don't know. Like, well, even if if you ended up with like the Blue Jays and the Marlins in the World Series, like you may end up feeling like, eh, does this really feel real? Like if it's the Yankees and Dodgers, you're, you're gonna feel like, oh no, this is, you know, this is real. But that ain't fair, though. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like that's no, not I, fair. I get, just because I get it. like it has to be a big market team to win. Like I think they. <laughs> I think it. I mean, I think it'd be cooler if somebody else came out of this. You know what I'm saying? Obviously, I'm a Yankee fan. I would love for us to be in the World Series, but I think it'd be fun for the fan base of baseball if it was the Reds and whoever, the, whoever else. You know what I'm saying? Ryan just revealed himself as a big market baseball guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a baseball Try, Republican. Fuck the small it's market like, teams. Like, that's right. All the, all the money. Uh, team. You know, it is. I was a huge fan of reading about the ABA yeah. back in the seventies. And they would have these seasons where like a team would just fold after eight games. And then they would, <laughs> you know, then huh. they would figure out the schedule. The last season they played, they only finished the season, I think with six teams. And I think wow. they started Jeez. with like nine or 10. So wow. it reminds me of like what we grew up reading about with some of the leagues that were trying to get going or trying to hold on, where you might have a baseball season where it ends if 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 you guys are right and this keeps going, it might be twenty four teams by the end, or that you know you better have six teams just get suspended. But I I think CC made the key point. It's fits the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Cubs. Fits a real team that has to get suspended with real money and and big stars and stuff like that, and they keep the season going after that. That's what. Yeah. That's when you know they're committed to the bitter end. Yeah. You, you're right. It's a lot easier to stomach the Marlins dealing with this than if all of a sudden half the Yankees had it. No, no doubt about it. That, that That's very true. I do think like, you know, we're always, isn't it so funny now too? We used to like debate, like, can you, can you add this rule? Like baseball, is such a traditional sport. Can they bend just a little bit to the idea of this? And now it's like, <laughs> you got no choice, but to be malleable because the only way you're going to have a season. Yeah. Right. Do you think we'll get rid of the code finally, CC? <laughs> I hope so. I mean, but I, I was watching MLB Network the other day and somebody was on Tim Anderson about bat flip and I'm like, yo, let it go, man. Like, I mean, it's never going to be a fun game if you guys freak out about bat flips. Like, it is what it is, man. Like, I mean, I would love for them to get rid of the code. I would love for them to keep the runner on second base in, in, uh, in extra innings. Like, I would love for them to do that. So you don't have to waste pitchers. I mean, you know, nobody wants to play 17, 18 innings. You know what I mean? Like, let's get the guy on second base. I mean, even if that, if it's not the 10th inning and the 11th inning, put the guy on second base and we go from there. No, the the 18-inning games are for people like me in my 20s in Boston with nothing better to do, getting home <laughs> from bartending and... The Red Sox are in the 16th inning and be like, this is great. I'll stay up at 4 o'clock watching this. <laughs> that, that, those are the only winners with 18-inning games. Ryan, what was it like? I'm sure you've done this before, but now you're going to have to do it over and over again. What was it like to announce a game from a studio and try to have the same kind of energy? Not just the filling the spots, but just like you're basically narrating a TV screen. Yeah, it's we. You know what's funny, too? Like I had them. We talked about like our whole monitor setup. And I had them give us kind of like um, uh, we have, you know, a couple of huge monitors that show the game cut, right? Like what you're watching at home when you're watching the game. And then I had them give us like some different cameras as well, just to see like, cause you know, if I'm watching the floor, 
I'm seeing things at times and leading the director, right? I'm not just reacting to the monitor. But doing the game, it's like you really, you can't even take your eyes off. At least maybe I'll adjust the main game cut because it's the only way you're really able to see the action happening. And that was, you know, that was weird for me just getting used to having that limited vision. But the thing that I felt good about actually was like, I was wondering, am I going to be able to like get into a call, you know, like, because it feels like such a sterile environment. Whereas like, if I'm courtside, there are times where I'm like standing up, fist pumping. You just like get your whole body into a call. And I was like, I don't know. And then Allie Quigley in our second game on uh, Sunday, she hits a go ahead shot to lead this like late comeback for Chicago, a three right off the bench with like 15 seconds left. And I'm like all into it, like, <laughs> like really like body and like, and I was like, yeah. And Rebecca turns to me, she was like, that like, it sounded real. And I was like, okay, good. Like I, it, I did feel, I felt invested and I was wondering, I think actually having some of that sound in the arena, it helps like, and, and even like them pumping into the fake, um, you know, defense, defense, all the arena, like sort of musical choices. Mm. I think it helps you kind of simulate a little more of a real experience than I thought it would be. So I felt better about it than I thought I was going to, because that was my biggest worry, man. You know, you're sitting in a studio. Are you going to feel the you know, the stakes, right? Like, I don't know. Have you fit watching? I know it's, you've only watched scrimmages so far, but even like watching the Red Sox, have you felt the stakes? Have the games felt meaningful to you yet, Bill? No. The basketball felt closer because that I just in general, it, it I'm just used to watching at least basketball in a closed environment like that from summer league. So it felt yeah. more normal. The baseball the fans were just a bigger part of it than I, I I think I realized. And I knew it was a big part of it, but you just, there's so much dead time. I, I can't get around it. But then when you see, you know, somebody hits a homer and they switch to that overhead shot and there's empty seats, it's just hard not to think like, wow, this is weird. And I don't know when you get past that. With the NBA, you don't really have to worry about it because they've gimmicked it. So you're not thinking about it. In baseball, I, I don't know how you, how you don't think about it. I'll tell you this though: this is CC's one chance to be a color analyst for uh, <laughs> baseball games because you don't have Listen. to travel, right? Just do it on Zoom. It sounds good, but me and Ryan did two innings of one of those summer camp games, and it, it's yeah. no, it's no chance I can do a game without cussing. I can't go four <laughs> innings without dropping an f bomb. So that's that's not looking too good in my future doing games. It's yeah, maybe it have to be a special channel. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, that's what CC wants, man. He wants like a you know, like a, a a YouTube simulcast where you could you could curse in game. Let's do that, Bill. You got you got to hook that up for us. If you if you do if we could do a game and I could do it on here and we and me and him watch the game and I could just watch it, I think it'd be funny. I think it'd be I, great. I, I'm gonna make that happen because I would like to swear <laughs> just as much. So that would be really fun. <laughs> we should do a Red Sox Yankee game. Is what we should do. Oh my God! Not this year. Not with this Red Sox team. <laughs> You would be our number two starter right now, rehabbing your shoulder. <laughs> um, hey, one of one of CC's things is he happens to know like every famous athlete in every sport. What what's going on in famous athlete circles with the with the corona and this whole world? Give us take us behind the curtain, as Jalen Rose would say. What is what's going on in the famous worlds? You know what? I haven't really talked to anybody, man. I mean, oh, you stop know. it! I don't need that for honestly, a second. No I mean, way. I'm trying to think. Like, I, I mean, I, I, I golf with Tuck a lot. He lives over here, so I've been seeing him. Um, you know, I talk to Stray every now and again. He's doing good, but 
I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really like try to bug the guys. What about the, guys the current right guys, though? What about like what about Mookie? You must have texted oh, him after him. he I, I talked to him. I talk to Mook damn near every day. I talk to him all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, I talk to Aaron Hicks pretty much every day. Giancarlo, all these guys. So yeah, I these mean, guys I feel good about the season. What like what's the vibe? I know, like I said, I mean, Mookie is like Max. You know what I'm saying? Like he he wants to play. He wants to get out there. He just got the contract. He's in L.A. Like. He's super excited. Um, you know, a few other guys are like, ah, I don't know. What are we doing? Like, should I be playing? Like, I'm getting calls all the time. So um, it, it's, you know, guys on both ends of the scale just trying to figure out, you know, what's best. And, you know, but I think the most part, the the baseball, the guys that love the game want to get out there and play. You know, Ryan, uh, I had this fantasy that Mookie was going to use the Dodgers for a year and then come back to Boston. And then when I talked to CC a couple months ago and he just pissed all over it in like two seconds. He's like, no, no, he's out of there. He's, he's not leaving California. He's signing with the Dodgers. And I'm like, he's really? No way. No, that'll happen. Like every once in a while. I remember C has been saying that about Mookie. For a while, we did a podcast last year with Mookie and Price uh, in in season. Yeah, it was it was great. That was and fun. It, yeah, yeah. That, it was really fun. It was also like there was something to it, right? You have active Yankees because CC's still playing, and active Red Sox at the same time during a series, um, which you can imagine what some of the you know Twitter responses were to us. Uh, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah, fraternizing with the enemy. But like, I remember getting done with that, and the way Mookie was talking about Boston, and I was like, eh, I don't know. If he's, and CC immediately. <laughs> CC was like, oh, he's out, cuz. He's gone. He's, he's out, he's definitely yeah. Gone. Yeah. That yeah. was with KD, too. Remember, I kept telling y'all. I was yeah, like, yo, yes. KD is going to Golden State. Everybody's like, no, he can't do that. KD is going to Golden State, bro. Like, he wanted to play there. So, Mook wanted to play in LA. He wanted to get out of Boston. So, you know, I'm happy for him. How about Giannis? What's your Giannis prediction a year from now? A year from now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a free agent 2021. I keep hearing that uh, somebody they were saying that he was he was leaving, but I, I, I he's he seems like the type of person that will he want to stay in Milwaukee, you know, like he you know he got drafted by those guys, they have a good team around him, um, but you know what, with this bubble, like there's going to be some super teams coming out of this shit, like they're all at an AAU camp right now, they all hanging out. Guys are figuring out who they like, who they want to hang around. Oh, I can see my game with this guy, all of that shit. So you never know after what we're witnessing, what we're going through right now, what's going to come out of this. But my gut, initial gut, is that Giannis will stay in Milwaukee. Milwaukee's a great place to play. Hey, let's take a quick break to talk about Stamps.com. As we slowly adjust to a new normal, we still need to be smart about how we do business. Luckily, Stamps.com is here to make things easier. They bring all the mailing and shipping services you need right to your computer in the comfort of your home or office. Whether you're a small business sending invoices and online seller shipping out products or just working from home and need mail stuff, Stamps.com can handle all. With ease, use your computer to print out official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send once your mail is ready. Just leave it for your mail carrier. Schedule a pickup or drop it in a mailbox. You also get great discounts with Stamps.com. Five cents off every stamp, up to 62% off USPS and UPS shipping rates. Stamps.com, a no-brainer. Saves you time and money. Right now, listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment, go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in BS 
That is stamps.com. Enter BS. Back to Ryan and Cece. Ryan, you also have the Knicks who have cleaned house <laughs> yet again. Brand new front <laughs> office. Um, oh, and they, they picked a front office. I actually think this is the first smart front office they've picked where it's people who have relationships, right? Yeah. They have Leon, yeah. they have they have Wes, and they have this whole Kentucky pipeline. And every, you know, the players, they have really good relationships all over the map. And if they were ever going to recruit guys to come to the Knicks, that's kind of how you have to do it. It can't be with grumpy old Phil Jackson talking about the freaking triangle. It's got to be <laughs> guys who are on the ground. Yeah. You know, who knew like Anthony Davis since he was 17 and shit like that. Right. I, I agree, man. I agree. We've seen, I mean, we've seen them, you know, try it over and over and over and over again in this city and not get it right. Right. This is the first time where I feel like they hire the right guys to try and run this because it's also about like, okay, you know, if, you know, certain ingrained mouthpieces are telling me, no, this time it's different. I, I'm not trusting that. Right. Or, you know, or if you have Steve Mills hanging around for years and years and years and years, and it's like, okay, you say it's different, but this piece is still there. Like, and he still had like, don't you need to change that piece this time? These guys, not only do they have the relationships, but I, I think, you know, they've earned the trust of players around the league. So when they say, I'm telling you it's different, I'm telling you, you have, we have control. I think they're believed. I always think about this story, though. We we were doing a, a Bucks Knicks game in like Porzingis's first or second year, I want to say. And Doug Collins and I are doing the game, and we go in to uh, interview KP, and he's he's missed like a couple games, and he's so excited to be back on the floor before any big injuries. It was like a tweaked ankle; he missed two games. He is so giddy, loving life. Like, oh my gosh, this is amazing! And Doug turns to me, he says, "You see how happy he is." Let's see how long it takes before this organization bogs him down and he's upset. And all of yeah. a sudden, that smile goes away forever. And yeah. it was like, you, you know, it, it, it happened in like two months after that. Like, and obviously then the rest of his Nick tenure was a train wreck as far as the relationship between him and the organization goes. And I just think it, it became so predictable no matter how excited guys were to be there, no matter what their skill set was, whether they could develop on their own or not, just the mentality, you couldn't handle it. So I think it takes somebody who, you know, kind of hasn't been there, right? To, to not have that weight on them anymore, to change the experience for the players so that they aren't, oh, here we go again, you know, because when one thing goes wrong, you know, Bill, it snowballs in this town. And then all of a sudden, you start to feel that momentum from the fan base and that narrative that exists with the Knicks here in this city. If if Wes and Leon can't turn this thing around with the Knicks, then it's not gonna get turned around. Like, shut it down, I'm, I'm, go home. <laughs> shut it down, bro. Like if <laughs> if because I you know I've been knowing Wes for twenty years, and, and and you know Bill, you know you friends with him too, and his relationships with everybody. Like if like you said, Ryan, if he's telling you something, mm -hmm. it's it's the word. You know what I'm saying? Like it's mm -hmm. gospel. So you know, I mean, he's been great to me. You know, for twenty years, and I and like I said, I mean, if if these guys can't turn it around, but the relationships that they have, then there's no turning it around. I mean, guys love to play in New York. Look at DeAndre. DeAndre is with the Knicks, right? And then he stays in New York, to, but he he wants to be in New York, but he has to go to Brooklyn to, to go to an organization that's going to, like, you know, take care of him and try to win and, and put him in the best situation. So guys want to be here. Guys want to play in New York. It's just, you know, you have to get the franchise right to be able to, you know, recruit the right players. You're not being able to get KD when he wanted to come to New York 
when his business was moving to New York and you still can't get him. That's, that's pretty bad. We saw the same thing that's the, that you just described with the Knicks, Ryan. That's what the Clippers were like until Sterling left. And mm. I remember even making, I did a draft diary the year they drafted Eric Gordon. And it was, I think I wrote something like great pick, perfect fit for them. I can't wait to watch the hope slowly get drained out of his eyes over the next <laughs> four years. And, and it was literally exactly what happened. He came in wide eyed. He's going toe to toe with Kobe. And you know, he, and by within three years, he just has that look on his face and it's, just the way it is. So I don't yeah. know. I don't, I don't know if Dolan's Dolan's as bad as Sterling, but I know that's what the culture that was in there and that's what they need to change. So I think those guys can change it. Can we talk about, um, how you guys got hooked up once upon a time? How did yeah. you guys end up doing a podcast together? Cause it's three plus years old now. Yeah. You, you know, the, the relationship started bonding over hoops, man. We, yeah. I, CC was in his first year with the Yankees and, um, like I quickly learned I, I was 21 doing stuff like hosting for the scoreboard at Yankee stadium, uh, the first year of the new stadium. And I quickly learned like, and you know, this bill, like if you're talking to athletes, they would much rather talk about anything other than their given sport. Right. Like, you know, if you're trying to build relationships and CC and I just kind of bonded talking basketball because at that time he was a Lakers fan. I was Things a Lakers fan at this time. Things have changed since then. <laughs> but you know, at that time <laughs> he was a Lakers fan. And so we we were that was when they're in the finals in 09 and 10 and uh in 09 against the Magic. And we were bonding over that. And then then I when I was hosting my show on ESPN radio, you used to text me, see, when I was on the air and stuff. And um and then we would always talk about we ended up having like common friend circles. And we would talk about uh, like, hey, we should do something someday. And then uh, like, oh, like we should host a show. And then I stopped hosting shows. I was like, oh, we should do a podcast. But you never know how serious, you know, someone is. And then I don't know what may I actually never asked you, see, but you called me then in the sp in spring training of 2017. And you were like, it's time. Let's do this now. I don't know what made you do it right then, but, but I, I just was, was uh, like I had just came out of rehab that year before, um, you know, in, in 16. Uh, and or in 15, but and played 16. And I just felt like I was old enough. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I was 17 years in the league at that point, And I was, you know, basically saying whatever I wanted to. So I just thought it'd be cool to for me and you to be able to do it. And and one of the big things that, you know, me, I mean, we have a lot in common. Obviously, we came from different backgrounds, completely different, but we like a lot of the same things. And and I just I, I can feel that right away. And I and I, you know, I text, I reached out and texted him. I was like, man, we should. We should just try and just start a podcast and, you know, our, our, our group text that we're in, like, is always like good conversations. So um, I just felt like it would work. And I think the the one thing that we both wanted was it to be upbeat and not like beating down people or going at people. And I don't like this guy and I don't like that guy. And, you know, I think it was, you know, I, I think it was a conscious decision on both of our, our parts to make it a fun podcast where people can come on and, and enjoy themselves and laugh and talk shit. Yeah. You know what, Bill? That that was the thing, man. Like we, we I remember us having that convo and we were just like, we don't want to make mountains out of molehills. You know, we want to hear guys come on and feel comfortable to like tell stories, share perspectives, you know, like not be so like on guard, like but but really feel comfortable being themselves. And from hosting daily radio in New York for five or six years and growing up in this market, listening like, you know, growing up in Boston, listening. 
I just doing it. I got sick of that. Like I got sick of like trying to make something into a big deal that I just knew wasn't. <laughs> and, and, right. and, and this was an avenue for us to still have that sort of connectivity with an audience, but also like get to hear interesting insights. And our guests know, like you come on here, we're not, we're not doing gotcha stuff. You know, we're like, we're just going to give you the chance to actually express yourself. I was talking to Jalen about CC, uh, two weeks ago. And I, and, and I said this to you, um, how much the conversation I had with you a couple months ago reminded me of when I talked to Jalen in 2010, where he wanted to have an impact in media, but not in the traditional course of how athletes are supposed to have an impact in media, where it's like, all right, put a suit on, sit behind the desk, move your hands, take your turns. <laughs> and Jalen was laughing because he, he's known you. Obviously, you guys have known each other for a long time, but he's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I, I knew CC wasn't built for this life. <laughs> he was doing get up and he had a suit on and he wanted to keep his hat on. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, this guy is not going to make it at ESPN. <laughs> and, uh, Yo, I'm so glad I did that, though. Like, I'm so glad, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that they hired me and I got the chance to do that during my final year to let me know that, like, I wanted to, like, do something less traditional. You know what I mean? Like, right. It's that's that's not something that I can really fit into. And like I said, I mean, I can't really probably do a baseball game either because I'm going to drop an F-bomb at some point. Like, you know what I'm saying? It just is what it is. So I like talking about sports like a regular person. And I'm a huge sports fan. And, you know, whether it's my group text with, with Ryan and the guys that we're in there with or my guys from home, like we have serious, passionate conversations about sports. And sometimes it ain't always clean. It is what it is. And <laughs> and I want I want to get that across. You know what I'm saying? Just, just like everybody else in their friend circles had these conversations. This is what we talk about. Well, I'm excited to have you for the uh for the basketball bubble. I think the yeah. basketball bubble is gonna be amazing. Like my 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 wife wanted to go see friends that we have in Santa Inez this weekend. And I'm like, have fun. <laughs> I'm going to be in front of a TV for three straight days. Yes. <laughs> you tell me how it goes. You know I, what? I'm just so ready. Yeah. And, and I didn't think I would be, but I'm like, in, even the scrimmages, I'm like into it. The scrimmages are good. Like watching Bo Bo do his thing finally. Yeah. Like, it's been fun. And even like for me, I, I didn't think I would be a big baseball watcher, but I'm watching every game. Like, I, like I'm watching my guys pitch. I watched Lester pitch last night. Like I watched Sonny pitch. I watched Bauer pitch. Like, I'm having a good time just being an actual real sports fan. Like, I love it. It's, it's well, great. we were all like Tom Hanks on the Castaway Island, and then oh. just waiting for something to show up on shore. Right? It's like, <laughs> oh, some FedEx packages. What are these? <laughs> oh, an ice skate. And uh, that's how I felt with the baseball. I, I'm totally with you. I watch. I always only watch Red Sox games. I'm sitting there. I'm watching that. I was uh, watching WNBA. It's like, oh. People are playing sports and it didn't happen 25 years ago. This is great. <laughs> right. I know it, it makes you wonder. Rather, remember when we went through that like brief period of time where we wondered, like, can we just on a daily basis watch old games? Like, can we can we go through this during this period of time? The answer was yes for two months. Exactly. <laughs> like for, for a brief period of time, it was like it was cool. I remember like I, watching game game five of the 96 World Series. I'm like, oh, this is great. And then eventually I'm like. Man, I needed something. As soon as Serie A came back, I was like on every Serie A game, just something that's live. And and it, fe it feels good to have it. The NBA, I do think it, it looks good. And there's also something that you can connect with with like a basketball tournament, right? Like even yeah, yeah. It, it feels 
there's like a legitimacy embedded in it. Also helps that we had 75% of the regular season, right? Like, so it makes it easier to accept. But I think it, it feels like just watching the scrimmages didn't feel like watching exhibition. It felt like very legitimate. No, the guys stayed in shape. I think it's fun that there's some teams that are different. You know, like yeah. Portland has Nurkic back and Collins. Yeah. And are, are a completely different team now and a team that if they can get in the playoffs, I think would actually be tough to play. Uh, the Lakers lose Bradley. They lose Rondo. Now they have to like really rely on Caruso. Yeah. Indiana loses Sabonis. They have to figure out their new strategy. Philly's playing Simmons at power forward. The Celtics have Kemba who, depending on who you talk to, like this is a really serious arthritis thing that he might have going with his knees. Like it's, and he, it doesn't sound like, uh, it got any better over the last four plus months. So that's a huge wild card. And then you lose home court advantage. And it's like, anybody can beat anyone in this bubble, yeah. you know? Whereas like for Milwaukee, it was such a huge advantage to be the one seed. And now it's like, what does that even mean? If they play Philly in round two in a bubble, who fucking cares? Like they, who cares who's one and who's four? It doesn't matter. So I don't know. It, 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 I'm, I definitely think it's, there's so many storylines going on. Plus you have LeBron. Try you know this could be his last chance. Yeah, and I want to see Jokic like like light now. He's skinny. I saw him dunk the other day. I'm like, yo, if he's doing that, moving around like Denver's gonna be really good too. I mean, I mean, I want to see uh, Luca in a in a series. Like, I want to see him in a playoff series. Like, he catches fire. Like, he's gonna put some. He's gonna he's gonna fuck up somebody's championship plans. I'm telling you. Like, it's gonna be fun to watch. Yeah, I was I was debating on him for first team All NBA. Hmm. trying to figure out if I could squeeze him in. but I Over, ended up going, over who? Well, I ended up cheating a little bit. I put Davis at center so I could have uh, Giannis and Kawhi at forward and then LeBron and Harden as guards. I put LeBron <laughs> at guard. That was my big cheat. <laughs> wow. He played, point, he played point guard. Yeah, he, okay. did. Yeah, like, he did. I was just like, these are the best five guys I saw this year. I want to put them on the first team. This would make sense as a team. If these five guys played together, they, and so anyway, but, um, you, you know, what's crazy. Like just thinking about it as a tournament style, like everybody keeps saying like, watch out for Houston. Right. Cause this feels like the kind of area where Harden could thrive, but see, I've been thinking a little bit of what you've been thinking too. Like, I think Luca is dangerous in this kind of setting too. And there's, mm. I don't know, there, there's something, I don't know. See, you, you tell me if this is a real thing, but it feels like in this kind of setting, there's some kind of like competitive switch that that can go off for certain guys in this setting where they're like, Oh no, no, this is, you know, this is my tournament. I can, I can carry a team for a series. I can do that when I'm not playing on the road. There's something about that that feels real. I don't know why, but it does. Yeah. 1000%. I mean, you even look at like Luca, but you even look at like somebody like Jason Tatum, like Tatum can get, get in a bubble and just like go crazy. And then the Celtics win the championship. You know what I'm saying? Like it's so many different guys that can kind of just go off in this tournament kind of AAU setting that they're used to and, and really witness things. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I don't think it's going to be in the, who we think is going to be in the finals. I think it's going to be, I honestly think it's going to be Boston and Denver. That's who I'm picking. Wow. wow Denver. Yeah. I like Denver. I feel it. I always go like, if my life depended on it, who am I picking? I think the Clippers are the safest bet mm. because they're, they're all healthy the team is is pretty malleable in a bunch of different ways. And I do feel like the Lakers, you know, they, they are going to have some issues 
on the guard standpoint where they're relying on like Caruso and Quinn cook. These are guys who have never been in big games. The same thing with Philly where everybody's like, no, shake Milton. They figured this out. And it's like, shake Milton's played for two weeks. He's never been in a big game in his life. Like right. everybody always discounts, you know, reps and pressure and just, you know, to, to say Philly. And by the way, I'm scared of Philly because of Embiid, but like, all right, they just figured out that lineup right before the pandemic hit. And this is going to be what carries them to the finals. Like shake Milton's going to climb on that shake Milton horse and <laughs> ride him for four rounds. The guy just got here. So yeah, I think the Clippers, the Kawhi piece, yeah, the defense, the malleability, the fact that the, the, the worst thing they had was no home court advantage. Cause any playoff game, there's half the fans on the other team are in the building. So now that's taken away too. Good yeah. coach. Yeah, so. I trust. I trust Doc. George is gonna have to go off. Yeah, yeah, mm. but he's I, gonna have to go off. I like. I trust Doc too with having the right touch for this unique setting. You know, like, mm. bes- like besides the fact that he's, you know, he's an in- incredible coach in a million different ways. Like, I do. I I think it's you know to be able to get the most out of your team and keep them also right mentally during this. I think that's going to be a little bit of a unique challenge for coaches. And I trust Doc with that group. I, I agree with you, Bill. I think the Clippers are the safest, safest pick. And in the East, I actually, I love Milwaukee, but I, I like the Celtics. Oh, I, I love hearing this, guys. Thank yeah. you. This is really nice of both of you. Such a great way to start our relationship. I like, I'm a, I'm a young legs guy in weird situations like this. I was talking to my pod last week about the 99 season, which was condensed. And it really kind of favored like somebody like Duncan, who was at that point, second year in the league, just running a mock. Yeah. Um, the Knicks had Canby in Houston and Sprewell. They just had this young energy to them. Larry so, Johnson. He, yeah. He was pretty, yeah. He was, on that team, yeah, right? he, <laughs> he was like, but I mean, that was the four point shot year though. Um, yeah. But that would seem to favor the Celtics, but yeah, you know, that one of the things I'm worried about, my dad was talking about this with me last night was does Philly just say we're good at number six. We're going to stay here. Mm. And then it's Celtic Sixers round one round one where if Tice gets two fouls in the four minutes in the first quarter. And now we have like Ennis Cantor defending Embiid or Grant Williams. Like it gets dark fast for, for the South. So I, I would rather not see uh Philly. Anyway, all right. So what, your podcast. What about Miami? Because they were on fire right before everything stopped. Well, and they just added Iguodala too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the teams that are well coached that have the vet, like Jimmy Butts. Yeah. Tim, him, uh, he'll show up for these things and he'll have a, he'll carry himself a certain way. And I kind of like that. Um, I don't know. I, that's what's so great about this. It's like, you could tell me any scenario. Like you threw out Denver. I'm like, all right, maybe. Who yeah, knows? Maybe. If yeah. Gary Harris got hot and who, you know, and all of a sudden they're getting weird role player stuff and then Jokic is going off and yep. who knows? All right. So your podcast, it's going to be like, like one and a half times a week. Yeah. Something like that. At, Three yeah. every two weeks, maybe. Yeah. I think that's fair. Every, we, every Thursday we'll have an app. And then, and then we'll be sprinkling in additional ones too. Yeah. And we'll get all CC's 
um, horribly biased NBA takes. You know what's crazy in the NBA? I'm not biased at all. Like, you can ask Ryan. Like, I've been a Laker fan, a Warrior fan. Now I'm rolling with the Nets. So, I, you know, I just like good basketball, man. So you're just a bigamist. Yeah, I, just like, I just like big, good hoops, man. He's an NBA bigamist. He's just married to five teams. That's what, it, uh, is there a dream guest you're thinking about over the next, like, six, seven months? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, see, well, we know. See, see, one one year we decided, like, for we do, like, a Christmas challenge for each other. Like, and as the gift, the other one would have to get, you know, the other host prize guest on. And and then we just we totally forgot about that idea, never followed through <laughs> on it. But for Cece, it was Will Smith, who he actually met this past year on the shop. But yeah. so I think that would be a dream guest, right, Cece? Definitely. But I was too like anytime I like I meet like like I meet Shaq. I mean I meet Shaq. I, I see Shaq all the time. And I say the same thing every time to him, like, oh man, I'm such a big fan. Can you take a picture? Like I lock up, like <laughs> So when I saw Will Smith, I wanted to ask him on the pod, but I just locked up, man. I was just, I was just excited to like be there with him and like hear his conversations and stuff. But I'm a huge, huge, huge Will Smith fan. So he would be uh, him and Shaq would be two guys I would love to have on the pod for sure. Will Smith, yeah. secret tall guy. Yes, he is. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Ooh. He's like six three, six four, right? Yeah, he's like six four for sure. Yeah. Wow, man, yeah. that is yeah. big. Come on, Ryan. You got to keep up on your secret See, tall celebrities. I, I've been lacking, clearly. Exposed immediately. Man, I've always said to Eminem is a guy I've always wanted on. And CeCe wow. is friends with uh, his Paul manager, Rosenberg. Paul Rosenberg. So, you know, we tried. But M's like, you know, he's a weird interview. But, like, I feel like if you have enough knowledge, maybe you could leverage that to, like, get a little something out of him that you normally don't hear. I, don't I, know. Feel, I feel like he'd come on and be like standoffish, but like you're such a huge fan that you would get him to start talking. You know what I'm saying? Like you That's would hit him goal. with some shit. You would hit him with some shit. And he'd just open up, yeah. I feel like. so. And then anything Star Wars too, Bill. Like anything C, Star Wars. C, C and I are such huge Star Wars fans. We're like, you know, we 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 haven't yet had the Star Wars guest on yet, but that's like that's a goal too. Getting, so, getting some big Star Wars folks. Harrison Ford. What's Absolute, make him the goal? Let, yeah. Let's do it. Absolutely. That would be so sick. Oh, my gosh. Just, just don't tell him to fly his plane to your studio to do it. Tell him <laughs> oh to my stay gosh. out of the planes. Wait, wait. What? why is he still flying? I, he should not be flying. Just don't fly anymore, Harrison Ford. We love you. We want to protect you. He should not you. be flying. No more flying, Harrison Ford. Dude, he, he, every time he flies, something wrong happens, man. Oh, we gotta, oh, we got to protect him for sure. Well... I've admired the podcast for a while. It's a pleasure to have it at the ringer. It's a pleasure to have you guys in, uh, in our circle. I look forward to all the good stuff you're going to do. And, uh, it's been fun getting to know you. Thank you for coming on today. Good luck with the podcast. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, man. Love what you've done with the ringer, man. You're, you're the podcast goat. So this is a, this is a huge step for us and we're pumped about it, man. Yeah, for sure. It. This is a huge, huge step for us. Like he said, you are to go to the podcast, so uh, we're excited <laughs> to be here, man. <laughs> All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. All right. Before we get to Jason, I wanted to mention, CC collaborated with uh, Roots of Fight, which is one of my single favorite places in a place that I get the majority of my t-shirts, rootsoffight.com. He collaborated with them on the official Negro League Baseball Centennial collection. Ruko's actually wearing um, the Jackie Robinson shirt in the pod that we just did. But go check that out. I love rootsoffight.com. 
Um, really like those guys. So there you go for that. Let's talk about FanDuel. The NBA is back. FanDuel Sportsbook celebrating, giving you the chance to get an even bigger win when you bet the Clippers versus Lakers game this Thursday. For every 2,500 fans who bet on the Lakers to cover, FanDuel Sportsbook will move the line one point in the Lakers' favor. As long as enough fans keep betting, the line will keep moving. Best of all, we'll pay you out at whatever the line lands by tip-off so you don't have to wait to get in the action. Basically, they're giving away money. This is how it works. Uh, they did this with the a Bucks versus Sixers game earlier this year. Opened at Sixers plus eight and a half. Ended up Sixers plus 59 and a half. I'm pretty sure they covered. If you already have a FanDuel Sportsbook account, just look for the spread the love market to place your bet. Again, quote, spread the love, unquote. The spread the love market to place your bet. And if you've been holding out, then... Here's your chance to start betting on FanDuel with incredible ads. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app or visit sportsbook.fanduel.com. Today, 21 plus present in Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Must wager in designated crowdfunding market. Max wager 50 bucks. Payout at minus 110. Gambling problem. Call 800-GAMBLER in West Virginia. 1800GAMBLER.net in Indiana. 800-9-WITH-IT in Colorado. 1-800-522-4700. Before we get to Jason, new rewatchables went up. We did Ghost, me, Chris Ryan, and Amanda Dobbins. And you get to hear my thoughts on whether this movie was an accurate depiction on what happens when people go to either heaven or hell. I have some controversial takes on this. You can hear it. It's up right now in the rewatchables feed. Without further ado, Jason Gay, here he is. All right, we're taping this on Tuesday afternoon. Jason Gay is here from the Wall Street Journal. Sports is in more flux than it's been really in the last three months, I would say. Everybody was kind of expecting baseball to work and football to work, and basketball, I think, is working. But the football stuff, guys are starting to bow out with football now. We've seen multiple Patriots leave, and now it just seems like it's going to be a steady stream of that. Do we have football this year? Uh, I'm more confident in professional football's ability to find a way than I certainly am when college football's ability. I mean, college football, I mean, you know, the NFL is like, you know, it's, it's, it's 32 teams. It's uh, one commissioner. College football is like herding cats. I, I just can't imagine you can create any kind of structure where you're going to have, you know, no disruptions. Um, and you're seeing schools already and conferences already back away from fall sports altogether. None of the big, big, big conferences have done it yet, but we've certainly seen adjustments with conference play and all that kind of stuff. I know I'm hedging here. I, I, I just, the NFL is just such a operation, such a battleship that it's very hard to imagine that they will just not give it a full go. But you look at this last, you know, 48 hour stretch with baseball. And if you are not in a bubble, if you are not isolating, if you are not doing the kinds of things that the NBA or soccer has done in this country, you're exposing yourself to risk. No question. Yeah. And when the Marlins had the big catastrophe this week with all their guys testing positive, it, I can't say it was a surprising news story. No, of course you not. Know? And yeah. I it's I said this on Thursday's pod. The worse run you are, the more trouble you're gonna be in stuff like a freaking virus and a pandemic. And the baseball, I was actually watching when Manfred went on the first ESPN telecast and was doing his victory lap. It's like we're so proud of our guys. Yeah. You know, this is a hard thing to figure out. I was like, what did you figure out? You didn't figure out anything. You you 
put no systems in place at all. And you've left the door open for all kinds of terrible things to happen. And now, you know, it's already happened. And in general, are you, you know, we're around the same age. Um, are you surprised by how the lack of urgency for baseball to come back that was just in the general public compared to how this would have played out 40 years ago? You mean in terms of what the public wanted, like in terms of just like, get us baseball, get us. Yeah. Baseball. The people freaking out. Like even remember 94 when they went on strike sure. and sure. it was like, Oh my God, you guys are going away. What are we going to do? And I, I just haven't felt that way this time around. Yeah. It's an interesting question. It also requires like realizing that we're about 18 controversies and crises since when baseball had all this labor strife about whether or not they were going to actually come back and to look for a minute that they weren't going to come back at all. <clears throat> it's also strange to realize that baseball was the first program to come forward with a bubble presentation. Remember that there was like a minute yeah. to do the whole thing in Arizona. They're going to use the spring training complexes. The players were going to stay in hotels and everyone thought that oh, that was really sort of space aged and crazy. And, you know, baseball and basketball were kind of starting up at the same time. I know basketball has got a few days still before the regular season starts, but they could not be more different in the approach. I mean, baseball effectively, has a medical plan, an isolation plan, but kind of just shrugged its shoulders and said, look, we're going to regionalize here, but everyone's going to play in their home cities. And uh, I don't know, the, 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 the organization that ends up looking the best in this whole thing is, is Canada. Canada was kind of like, yeah, no thanks. We'll see you guys next year. Blue Jays, right. uh, we love you, but um, you, know, you might have to play in the United States the, for this season. Or the British, where they had the, the Open. And they're like, cool, we're just going to take the insurance money. We'll, we'll see you next year. And same thing for Wimbledon. The British were out immediately. They wanted no part of this. How smart does that person feel, that person who checked that pandemic uh, box on the insurance plan at one point? Oh, and man. Wimbledon has given prize money to, uh, to athletes. They sort of you know rationed out a bunch of money to people who had been participating in the tournament, which you know tennis is a sport where we know how much the five, six, seven, eight top players in the world make. But... People who are in that top 200 are barely breaking even sometimes. So, yeah, good for them. I mean, look, the, the, a lot of this stuff is the kind of thing where, like, once these ships get moving and the situation shifts with the pandemic, it makes it very hard to, you know, improvise from that. I read today on ESPN the talk of, like, well, is there a feasibility for an NFL bubble? Can you actually, like, go and do, like, containments within 32 NFL cities and just contain the players? Like, say, the Patriots are all staying at a hotel in Foxborough and everyone's living within two miles of the stadium. Can you do that? NFL teams, I mean, one NFL team has more personnel than the Eastern Conference, you know? Right. Just so many players. And also, you're talking about a five-month stretch, whereas the NBA was the buy-in for, like, okay, if you win the damn thing, you're going to be there in, for three months, but mostly everybody's going to be out there, but in a matter of, you know, a month and a half or, or, or around that. Well, it seemed like, you know, that you could do different parts of the country, right? Maybe you put four teams in each bubble spot or eight teams in each bubble spot, but it, did, it still doesn't solve the problem of 16 games, 12 games, 14 games, whatever, and just having to play different teams, not not being like baseball, at least you could play somebody for four games in a row. So I just don't know what the NFL does. They could put like Texas has facilities. They could, they have the hotels. They could potentially in two or three different parts of Texas, try to have an NFL season there. But would you want to be in Texas with 32 teams right now? when that's, <laughs> that's been a hotbed. Like that doesn't make sense either. So I don't know what they do. 
Yeah, I don't know either. And and you make a good point with the hotbed part, which is that, you know, it's impossible to separate this conversation about sports from what's happening contextually in the rest of the country. And like yeah. people say, well, why does the why did the Premier League finish its season? Why did Bundesliga work out? Why is baseball having all these problems? It's like, well, when European soccer was returning, their rates were significantly lower than what we're experiencing currently in the United States. I mean, no one's had the mm. kind of that we've had. And so they were in a much better position when they returned to normal. They're having conversations over there about returning fans. Um, and uh, it's a much more foreseeable situation over there than it certainly is here right now. And we're just kind of, I just feel like we're just kind of gripping the wheel and hoping that we get through it. And, and uh, but that's just not the way to go about this. That's certainly been the case in Los Angeles and the extended Los Angeles where everybody was really careful for two months and then it became all right, well, we're not going to just keep doing this, right? I got to, you know, summer's coming. What are we going to do? And and the mayor caved, the governor caved, and then all of a sudden we have restaurants opening and tattoo shops and all, and bars and beaches. And yeah. by Memorial Day, it was like no virus was happening. It was like, right. what are we doing? Wait, and people who had never have gone to the beach to get a tattoo were suddenly like, that sounds great. Let's yeah, great. Family. <laughs> Let's combine all of this stuff. A indoor bars on a beach where I get a tattoo. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of that. And I also feel like, uh, you know, when you evaluate the meaning of sports, obviously sports is a much bigger production than simply the athletes who are, you know, on the field and the ownership and all that kind of stuff. There are a great many lives that are impacted economies that are impacted by it. But, you know, for me, and I know you're in the same boat, you know, like 5% of Jason is worried about the NBA bubble. 95% is worried about school in September. And what am yeah. I going to do with my children? And uh, those, I mean, the fact that I don't know what my, kindergartner is going to do what my second grader is going to do that's crazy you know and and we're well i mean that's i feel we have a lot of parents who have young kids like that (laughs) i have a 15 year old and a 12 year old they can you can learn on zoom from teachers and do homework and have 70 to 80 percent of the school experience you miss all the social stuff when you start talking about younger kids you can't, that it's just not going to work on zoom. Anything fourth grade and below, you have no chance. The whole point of fourth grade and below is social. And now you're removing that and you can't tell a kindergartner to be like on zoom with other, other crazy six-year-olds, you know, like it's just not going to work. And I feel really bad for the, for the kids, not just the parents. Like that's such a shit. You only get to be in kindergarten once. That's such a shitty way to have a kindergarten. Yeah. And, and I'm starting to sort of see that. And I'm probably, you're probably seeing that with your children too. Like we've had like, you know, a chance to give them some, you know, time with friends trying to be smart and wise about it, but that whole socialization of it, of their lives, which I feel is probably at my kid's age, a bigger part of their educational development than, you know, whatever they're doing with books and computers and things like that. They're missing it. I mean, it sucks. And it sucks to think of like a lonely seven-year-old kid, but there are a lot of them out there around the world. Right. Well, and then the other piece of that, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, there's a lot of stuff to do when you're alone and you get used to it, you know, and you think like, I have video games. I make my own schedule. I don't, I don't have to have these interactions that might not turn out that well. And then all of a sudden they get used to just being alone and they're not even 10 years old yet. Yeah. You know, and and I don't know, there's so many, 
there's so many repercussions to this now that this has lasted so long. I think I've been thinking about it from the youth sports perspective too. And these, oh, me too. these kids that are just losing an entire year and depending on, you know, what sport it is, it could be the most crucial year you're going to have. Like if you're a 10 year old soccer player, that's probably the most important year you have in soccer where you're really, the field's starting to get bigger. You're starting to put together concepts and to just remove that for a year, I think has dramatic ramifications. You can't pick that up in your backyard. It's impossible. Well, I can just say that I have thrown so much batting practice this spring and summer mm. that I can't wait to see it. And uh, I want to see some live pitching and see if there's any uh, development for my kids. But uh, yeah, like they, they miss all that. And just, you know, any degree. I mean, like I saw something this morning where they were showing like Halloween candy starting to show up in like drugstores. Like, what are we doing here? Is that Halloween that's feasible? No, that can't be. I mean, I'd bet anything against Halloween being normal. Yeah. Well, my that, younger, that, my that. younger kid asked about that. Like, is Halloween happening this year? And I'm like, pretty positive. No, I can't, I can't imagine a worse idea than Halloween, like a, a crowded neighborhood, people walking around taking well, candy every, from people. Yeah. Well, 2020, like every day is Halloween, you know, I feel like that's really when the wheels could come off for a lot of this stuff. Cause the election will be right around the corner. People will be probably home with their kids. I'm guessing during a school year. Yeah. We won't have any college sports. The NBA will be on the tail end. We might not have football. We might have um, a death rate that's piled up to staggering proportions. God knows what's only going to happen over the next two months. There's this whole divide between the two sides. The one side saying, ah, oh, the COVID's not that bad. It's like, it's basically a worse flu season. What are we doing? Um, the unemployment, all that stuff. And then the big thing lurking at the beginning of November, the election. And how that's going to play out. I remember being in meetings at the journal a year ago when we were talking about stuff like, okay, what's going to be our plan for the Tokyo Olympics? What's going to be our plan for, you know, the 2020 summer and looking at the whole landscape of, you know, we we're going to have these conventions and Milwaukee with Democratic convention, big convention in North Carolina for Republicans, you know, like it's going to be a crazy summer folks, you know, put on your helmets and, I mean, just none of us could have foreseen something as, you know, stressful as this. Although, I don't know how you feel about it. It seems to me that, you know, had someone said to you in mid-March, what are you going to be talking about in late July if there's very little sports back and the sports... It would have been back? the Olympics. It would have been Olympics and that's it, right? Yeah, no, but I mean, like, I think that sports you know candidly i'm kind of proud of the way that i think the sports media has been over the last like five months i think they have been pretty diligent about covering these sports and what's happening in sports and certainly the social justice movement within them responsibly and in interesting ways and you know putting forward voices and and, and that, that they weren't in the past and like i think that that's a good thing um and i wouldn't have predicted that there was that kind of agility uh, for sports media because, you know, there was, you know, no games to evaluate. What have you done? Cause you're writing this wall street journal column that veers in a whole bunch of directions and you've had to make it much more of a sports and life column. Yeah. Right? A little bit. And write about your own personal stuff and what it's like to be in the tri-state area and all right. that stuff. Like you're, you're mixing all that stuff in and it's not really a sports column as much anymore. Well, yeah, and all, I mean, uh, 
make it up as you go along, kind of. I think that like there's no way to sort of plan it out because the situation seems to change, you know, with each passing week and month. But I think that, um, you know, as you mentioned, I write a good deal in the first person and I did that beforehand. But uh, it's also interesting, sort of the shifting mood. I mean, like New York in March and April is not. Right. Um, it's grim. There was a very grim mood around here. Um, and I think as time has gone on, you know, obviously there's a great new dynamic happening in the city where, you know, I, I don't want to say like we're out of the woods or there's, you know, tremendous positivity, but the signs are hopeful. The buy-in in terms of wearing masks is hopeful. Um, I don't know. I just feel like the role of being a columnist is simply to tell your truth, you know, your personal truth. And, and, uh, <laughs> as, 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 um, Simple as that sounds, I think that's that's the job. And 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 there are a lot of people, you know, there are stories that we've done that are completely apart from sports entirely, and there's no real connection to it. But I think we've found that readers are engaging with it. I think that there's a huge hunger for information, analysis, translation, you know, and I have colleagues who are just doing amazing stuff all over the place. Um, you know, and, and also like, look, let's be candid about this. Right now, there's like there's a lot of disinformation out there, right? Especially when you're dealing with a public health issue like this, the importance of really good reporting and skillful reporters and people who know their, you know, SHIT is, is critical. Yeah. It's tougher and tougher to know who to believe and what to believe, depending on what source you're getting from and what the agenda is when they wrote the piece or all that. It, it seems like it's very easy these days to, skew a piece a certain way and to go into the piece before you even wrote it, knowing what the angle is going to be. And I, I think cause we're in this business for a living, we can kind of spot when, when something was clearly intended to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, and I find just the, the down the road journalism has been more and more interesting than people who are still trying to do that, you know, especially when they're talking about the government and some decisions that are being made that, anybody with an IQ over 85 would be like, what the fuck are they doing? Well, yeah, and to try to write about that in a balanced way is really hard. Yeah, no, I think that this is like, um, you know, put into sharp relief some of the chronic issues that have been going on for a really long time with regards to, you know, accuracy and, and, and biases and things like that. Because when you're, it's one thing if you're like talking about pure politics, but when you're talking about the public health, you're talking about people's livelihoods, both, physically and economically being correct and being honest when you don't know, uh, yeah. which is a huge part of it, uh, is so integral. And, uh, my one word, one line answer is, is read the newspaper. You know, I think the newspaper is whatever newspaper it is, is a generally good sourced, edited, reported source of information, whatever newspaper it is to pick us. So I'm, I'm a big believer. What do you see for the next four or five months in New York? How, do, how does it play out in the city? What's it like there now? What's it going to be like there in October or November? Well, I think, again, it's not as, uh, you know, dour a situation as it was in, 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 in March and April, certainly. I live in an apartment building where my downstairs neighbor is a uh, works at a, a major hospital in the city, and we'd sort of, like, breathlessly hang on his reports, you know, every day yeah. about how many people were coming in, how many people were, you know, and as that, that number kept climbing, 
in the spring, it was terrifying. Um, and things have settled down quite a bit. You know, I'm not somebody who's covering the day to day in New York City of uh, coronavirus. So I, I hesitate to put myself forward as any kind of expert on it. But it does seem like here in the city, there's been some stabilization, um, some embracing of this big version of normal. You see now like all the restaurants have overtaken both the sidewalk and the street areas. And so right. the streets uh, in the neighborhoods look like, you know, European streets in a funny way. Um, there's a lot of activity. Look, masks, you know, not everybody is wearing a mask, but I think they're a good, good chunk of people are, you know, certainly more people in masks than not. Um, social distancing rules seem to be being respected. Um, and then there's this, you know, uh, very, very vibrant and still very active protest scene in New York City, which continues through this uh, through the summer. And, and there's constant stuff happening there. So it is quite a summer for this city. But, you know, New York's not alone in that. This is, this is a national, if not international thing. Well, the one thing with New York City is you think about elevators, subways, Ooh. cabs, Uber. Yeah. All these, all these, they just people, 20 people on a street corner waiting for the walk sign to go and things like that, where in LA, you know, it's, it's a lot of people are in their cars and they're still in Uber think to some degree, but I was just thinking like, if you live, if your office was in the 68th floor of some building, or if you're in an apartment building you're on the 12th floor, whatever, you're going to be in an elevator. You're going to be in an elevator with four other people. And just that, that constant, oh shit, I got to have my mask on. Why isn't that guy have a mask on? What the fuck's going on? Like all that stuff is in play. And that's a huge question. And that's a good point that, that, that sort of that city office life has yet to return. There was this piece in the journal the other day about just sort of midtown office buildings, what the, you know, how many people are back in those? Cause some offices are actually coming back. Said yeah. about 10%. And I actually saw the 10%. I was like, that feels like a lot. That feels like a lot of people are in the which is a crazy thing to say about you know a 10% vacancy, uh, 10% occupancy rate. Um, but yeah, that whole part of New York City life of just you know taking the train to your office job and getting your hot dog on the street and what that whole culture is like. I mean, that's you know, changed and there have been 50 billion columns about, you know, what it means for office life. And I actually think, and I'm curious what you think, I think that, you know, when this began and there was all the conversation about, okay, now we all work from home if we can work, if we're lucky enough to work from home. Uh, okay, now we can do virtual learning if we're lucky enough to have access to virtual learning. Um, I thought, okay, this is the great disruption. We've been waiting for this moment to happen for a very long time. There really didn't, you know, seem to be a case for like paying $60,000 to send your kids to college. Like, you know, we're going to really disrupt it. But I feel like over time, the in-person case has really made itself. It, it, the, the, the case for in-person learning has been made very strongly. Like the mm. idea of community and the idea of like, what you get from being in an office setting and talking to people. And I know there's all kinds of like non essential nonsense that happens when you're in an office. And I'm one of those people who finds it very hard to work, you know, at a desk in an office and has to be away from that. But you miss that socialization. And I think that you're seeing, and there was an, another piece in the journal about this, that like, yeah, the people who are like the work from home gurus are suddenly saying like, yeah, maybe there was something to the idea of stacking everybody into an office and what kind of creative osmosis you might have there. But 
it's not coming back soon. You just saw Google's big announcement, what, 200,000 employees. You know, they're not expecting anybody back for months and months and months and months. And I think everyone's going to follow along that. Yeah, the the spitballing that you get from being around an office, I really miss that. Especially like some of the ideas we were able to generate was always like at least a few people in the room. It was something I was always really good at. And Your you daughter, just, is not, she's not college age, right? She's no, in, no, she's ninth grade. Okay. Um, but like I, I, I was talking to a relative who's, you know, in college and they're talking about what their college plans are for coming back. And they're like, well, 20% of the campus is going to be occupied. So like, you know, 20% of the students that are normally there are going to be there and, and they're probably going to give priority to the freshmen and the sophomores. And I'm like, it sounds like it sucks. That yeah, doesn't sound, like Does sound like college. I know no. I've been talking to a lot of people about this. Some people are just deferring for a year. People who are going to college, they're just like, well, why would I want to spend my freshman year doing this? So sure. that'll be interesting to see how they manage that. And then from an office standpoint, I did, you talked about a disruption and I think this is something that has popped up over and over again with people I've talked to who are either in the decision-making part of this or just are in an office where the office used to be a huge part of it. And then everybody kind of realized, oh, maybe we didn't have to do some of the things we were doing in the past. And maybe when we come out of this, whenever that is, maybe I don't have to travel to New York and Chicago and LA or wherever I'm going once a month. Maybe I could do some of this stuff on zoom. Maybe I don't have to be in the office every single day. Maybe I could be in the office three out of the five days. Maybe we could arrange it. So only 50% of the office is full each day. And then on Thursdays, that's when the meeting happens. I do think people are going to start thinking outside of the box on this stuff over the old way of just like, Hey, come to the office Monday through Friday. This is what we do. I don't know if you need to do that anymore. And I think for New York, it could be a game changer. You know, if people only had to go in the office three days a week or living in Connecticut or New Jersey or whatever versus five, then there's less cars on the road. And, you know, there's a lot of good benefits. There's good for the atmosphere. It's well, good for health, all that stuff. But I think there's a more existential question then becomes like, do companies want to even be in New York? What's the point of that? If you're only having people come in for two days a week or three days a week, why are you spending all this money for office space? And why are your employees spending all this money to live in this expensive part of the country? Like if we're going to go virtual, let's go all in and like just decentralize everyone and let everyone go where you they might want. see that happen. I mean, sure. that honestly might be where it goes. I know in New York and LA, the commercial real estate people are panicking. Yeah. Because, you know, if you have the 68 floor office building in New York City that you just finished building and it's going to be available in November 2020, how are you going to fill all those floors? Yeah. Who's like, cool, yeah. sign me up. Give me yeah. floors 32 to 38. Like, that's not happening. Yeah. And, and, and I admit that my faith in New York city is nothing more than like faith. Like my faith is like, okay, you know, New York, you know, we've been knocked around before and, and, and came back really strong. And like, and I'm, I, I just feel like, you know, there's this wave of like stories, like, you know, they left New York city for the suburbs and they say they're never coming back. And I just feel like in 18 months, we're going to see the, they hate the suburbs. They can't keep back to get to New York city, but I don't know that I'm hoping that will happen because it's happened in the past. We saw people leave and then come back because they missed that, whatever thing New York city gave to them. But what this last period has proven is we don't know we're old enough to remember each trend as it happened, right? Like in the nineties, that was a big move to the suburbs, get out of the city. You don't want to be in the city. You want to be, you know, living in a town near the city. And then starting in the mid two thousands, moving back 
to the city became a big thing, especially for people who were in like their fifties and sixties. It was definitely like, that's why Boston, downtown Boston took off. I think downtown New York was the same thing where people kind of wanted to be where the action is. You know, when I was growing up in Boston in the seventies, early eighties, like the goal was always to get to Weston, Wellesley, any suburb that was away from the city. And by the mid 2000s, it was the opposite. People wanted to actually be where the action was, where the restaurants were, all that stuff. So I don't know how it plays out now. Well, I I was, my mother still lives in the Boston area. And like, I was back there and like, it is a weird town without students. I mean, when you think about how many colleges are there and how many students are there and like, even in the summertime when, you know, there's not as much college happening, there's still a ton of students around. And we were walking around Harvard Square and it felt like an abandoned mall. And like, that is just a bizarre thing. It's like basically downtown DC now. My dad always, my dad said, because they've also closed all the bars. So you have no students and you have no bars, which were probably the number one and two things you would think of when you, when you're in Boston, especially sure. like in October. Sure. Um, it's people are just doing stuff. And now it's like people are on power walks and <laughs> what, you know, just kind of, everybody's got their headphones on with putting their mask on when somebody gets 15 feet away, taking the yeah. mask off. If there's some daylight for a while, what are you doing for exercise? Are you riding your bike? Like, what are you doing? I've been riding my bike like a mad person. Yeah, it's like uh, that That has been something that has kept me sane. Um, and I'm very happy that I'm doing that. But I find that like even the people who found their little niche during this, like, oh, I'm going to teach myself how to cook or I'm going to be a bicyclist or I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to be a hiker. Like we're all kind of over that. <laughs> we just want to get back to whatever amalgam of things that we used to do before. And like, you know, we've watched all the TV shows. We've read all the blog. You know, like, what are we going to do? Well, I've noticed people either got in better shape or worse shape, but there's no in between. Nobody's in the exact same shape. They either put on 10 to 20 pounds or they got in awesome shape and they're bragging about it. This is where I am. I have ridden my bike more this year, because we you know, keep the data, uh, than I have in 12 years, like since before I got married and had children, and I have not lost a single pound. <laughs> so I think. Wow. Like, yeah, it gets tougher that, when you're older. Well, yeah, it's tougher when you're older, but it also just like there's a lot of incoming, okay? You know, as yeah. well as the uh, exercise going on. Well, the other thing is, you know, speaking of just where we are in 2020, it's so easy to monitor every aspect of what you're doing. Yeah. So everybody's kind of on their own, but like I have a whoop, I have uh, I have my, my iPhone, which tracks stuff and I've been walking all over the place and I'm, I'm like looking at my steps, what my respiratory rate is on the whoop. You could find out like how, how much REM did I get last night? How much REM sleep, how much deep sleep. And you're just like assessing yourself like you're LeBron James or something. And meanwhile, it's just like, you know, we're just us. It's not like we're professional athletes. When you go for a walk, and I think I heard you say that you'd like to, you'll do calls on a walk. Will you like yeah. walk and you'll have the mask like, you know, with you in the case you run into a bunch of people? But like, can you do the phone call with the mask on, which you see a lot of in New York City, which looks really funny. Like someone just sort of talking. You can. It doesn't sound great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's why you got to do the mix and match. I do stuff. I'll be making work calls. I This happened to me a couple of weeks ago, and and I just ended up like, in this deep part of Beverly Hills. And I realized I was too far away from where I live. And I was like, how am I getting back home? And I had to walk to my mom's house and get a, get a ride back. So it's just like, you, sometimes you get a call, you just get lost in thought. And I'm so used to walking now. I'm not even sometimes even concentrating on where I'm going. 
Well, but also like, isn't it? I mean, it's not really a part of like LA culture to begin with too. And like, no. I would think of like, you know, you see someone walking around, but really they're like, what are they lost? Where are they going? Like, does that guy's car break down? Who's he talking to? Like, yeah. The weirdest outcomes in LA, everybody walking, which the only way I, I could compare it to like for somebody from New York to understand is if everybody was just on hoverboards that levitated six feet in the air and we're just traveling that way. And you'd be like, wow, that's weird. That's what it's like to see people walking in LA because nobody walks here. And then the atmosphere is that the sky and the air is just cleaner. Yeah. And you, you can actually see things from far away and you didn't realize how, uh, how damaging basically how our day-to-day life was. Have you been on an airplane? No, I have not. Yeah, me neither. It's not on my list. Feels like a big step. Yeah. It's not on my list. Let's, uh, let's talk about your friend Regis. Okay. Yeah. So one of my favorites, um, Really an amazing career, like the definition of a late bloomer. Definition of a late bloomer, yes. Where he's, I don't want to say bouncing around because he was doing better than that, but had a series of jobs, you know, for the first 15 years of his career. By the time he's in his early 40s, he's basically a morning show guy in LA. He's with Cindy Garvey, Steve Garvey's wife. Yep. And they have a... And it's probably his sixth or seventh gig at that point, maybe eighth. He had been the sidekick on the Joey Bishop show way back when he'd take it over to the Steve Allen show, all this stuff. And then he becomes kind of this belated morning show phenomenon, but it's still local ends up in New York teams up with Kathy Lee. Who's, um, I don't know if she was married to Frank Gifford yet. I don't think she was, I think she was Kathy Lee Johnson initially. Okay. And then, then they just, it's lightning in a bottle that takes off that goes national. All of a sudden he's famous. He's one of the big daytime hosts we've had. Then Kathy Lee leaves and it's like, well, that's not going to work. They bring in Kelly. Who's like a unicorn and it, and it goes to another level. And then as all this is happening, Michael Davies has this idea who wants to be a millionaire. Regis becomes the host. And at, in his sixties, he becomes one of the biggest stars in America. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got to know him later, which we can go into in a second, but I don't really remember another career like that. No, no. And you're absolutely right. The, the late bloomer part, especially, I mean, this is a guy who went to college and was in the Navy, you know, he didn't really even right. get going until his late twenties. He was a page, uh, for Steve Allen. He worked on the tonight show, um, behind the scenes. Um, and yeah, it was sort of knocking around and he only got on camera really for the first time in San Diego. He had a Regis Philbin show where you just would like, you'd be like, who's in San Diego today? And they would just come on the show and, you know, whoever yeah. was passing through town doing a show would go on Regis's show and he built up a little bit of a following reputation there, but it was certainly, you know, not what he would find later in his career. And like, it is an unusual TV arc. Yeah. Because usually you find that, you know, liftoff period happening in your 20s, 30s, at the latest, your 40s. But Regis's great ascension didn't really happen until his 50s and 60s. And even his 70s, I mean, millionaire, he was in his late 60s, I think, when it was starting. Um, I, I have a very hard time, though, with this uh, 20th anniversaries for things that are from year 2000. I'm, there's a rash of them going around now, and it makes me feel a thousand years old, like that, like almost famous is having a 20th anniversary. Sur- Survivor's another one. Yeah, I agree with you. It's because it, it does seem like 
it happened yesterday. The internet was in shape at that point. Like it wasn't that much different than now. It's hard to believe 20 years ago. Right. But millionaire was like this, like classic or not classic, but just like sort of like genre breaking show in that it became this phenomenon pretty quickly, like overnight. Almost. Oh yeah. And then they're like, we're just going to put it on all the time. It's going to be on every night. And not only is it going to be on every night, it was the number one show every single night for months and months and months and months and months. It just was like, I've never seen anything like it. Nothing. There's nothing that compares to it now. And also it was like, there hadn't been game shows on prime time and generations when this thing happened. Right. It's what we, growing up, we always heard how important game shows were in prime time. But right. we never saw it first. And we never saw that happen again. And, and 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 Regis is sort of like, and I wrote this in this thing I wrote about him the other day, but just like he was, you know, the consummate host. It was not a guy who came on to shows to pontificate or be a blowhard, provocateur, or anything like that. He was just somebody who you give the wheel and you get it from point A to point B, and he calmed people down. They liked him. And, you know, I I I I Michael could do a much better job of telling the origin story of how he got that job on Millionaire, but like, it doesn't, you know, it didn't, wasn't a natural idea. Regis, primetime, you know, uh, uh, quiz show, phenomenal. I mean, like you wouldn't have drawn it up that way, but really for that sliver of time, there's been nothing like it in TV ever since. So I remember after my parents got divorced and I started going to um, school in Connecticut and we would get shows like, you know, in the early mid eighties shows like live at five, yeah, which yeah. was, um, you know, and then you'd, there'd be the today show, good morning America, stuff like that. There was a specific way to do the show. And the male host always had a specific kind of personality, right? He was, he, you felt like you knew him, but you didn't know too much. He was kind of stable. He was just like, you know, like the dad driving the station wagon kind of personality. They were never like, big sticky kind of personalities. And when Regis, when the show with Kathy Lee started taking off, it was like he had taken this thing that existed, this job, and he made it so much more personable. And you would just watch it and be like, man, it, that guy seems, I would just love to hang out with that guy. That would seem like the most fun guy to sit next to at a dinner table. He just seems like who he is on the show. It really seems like he's the person. And it, some of it was shtick, but it was, it was weird. You, you mentioned this in your piece. It was shtick, but it wasn't because it was authentic to him. And he would get, he would come out and he would do this. And, but it, he kind of was in on the joke. It was never, it was never, I'm doing this, but I'm not in on the joke. He always knew what he was doing. I think that's why like people like Letterman and all those dudes loved having him as a guest. Cause he, he had such a firm grasp on what his persona was. You know what I mean? Well, that's also like, it, it, it sort of mirrors like it becoming a national show too. I think, wasn't it Dana Carvey did him on SNL? Oh yeah. Early days. Um, and, you know, they would always gravitate to that sort of like that. Yeah, the big Regis moments and stuff like that. But yeah, he was authentically himself and they weren't doing a heavy lift at the top of that show. They were just talking about what they did last night. You know, they'd be like, so it was, you know, uh, George Hamilton's birthday again, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I had never seen anything like that though. They would no. start the show and it, and I know it wasn't like this, but they made it seem like they had showed up at eight 59 for the nine o'clock show. And they poured Regis some coffee and just turned the cameras on. And I know that's not what they were doing, but oh, I, I no. think the ad libbing stuff felt so authentic and real. Cause I think it was. 
Well, I think it actually was closer than you think because mm. Reed lived across the street from the studio uh, where they did the uh, live show. And I remember asking him, what was the latest you could leave your place to get on the air? Because they would you know, go live at nine o'clock a.m. Eastern. And you know, they'd come over to his place and do wardrobe and hair and makeup. And I think he said he could get out of there with about 12 minutes to nine, like at 848. Oh, wow. Walk out the door. And they, they and and he went on and they did that cold, those those openings. I mean, it wasn't those were not pre-programmed. And I think very specifically, that was a very specific decision to do it that way so they could surprise each other and say things and you know come up. So that they, that wasn't his deal. Like he wasn't somebody who was like doing pre-planned bits too much. Right. You have to have a lot of trust in the person you're doing it with. Yeah. And I think in general, like I think Mike and the mad dog were like this too. Cause they're taking off the nineties. Regis is already established with Kathy Lee. That this two person format where you have two people that the chemistry is, is the show. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you could, you could fuck around with it however you want, but ultimately it's how those two people interact with one another is the show. And I think what makes him really special for me and really unique and really different than pretty much anyone we've had is his ability to connect with whoever he's with. Cause you think like Kathy Lee, especially in the second half of her career, like she was a handful, you know, and there was all these stories about like, man, she's a little off the rails. She's a diva, all this stuff. And you never would have known it. Regis just knew how to sell her. And I got to say like, Kornheiser's like this too, to do TV with. I remember when I did PTI the first time, um, and I had no idea what I was doing. He just sold the shit out of me, you know, and he made it, he was, he was going to make sure I succeeded. Right. And I think Regis was the same way with whoever he worked, even when like, who wants to be a billionaire, you would have these contestants and he would always be able to make the contestants super comfortable. And they would always be the best version of themselves. So that your experience was way later when he was, when you launched um, the show with Katie and everybody on FS1. It was like the first show, right? Wasn't that the inaugural? Yeah, it was Crowd Goes the, Wild. The, the rollout of, uh, of FS1. Yeah, it was called Crowd Goes Wild. And it was on uh, five days a week for one hour live. And that's another thing about Regis that we should talk about, which is that the vast, vast, vast majority of his television career was live television, which in and of itself is a totally different organism. I yep. mean, that shows how skillful the guy was that he could do that without a net for not years, but decades and generations that he was so good at that because in addition to the fact that it's a challenge to actually do a live program, it's a stress. Like it brings like, you know, it takes an energy and it takes a certain kind of composition of a person to be able to do that. Well, and you know, obviously he did it as well as anyone ever did. It's really hard to explain unless you've done it. And both of us have done it. Whatever was going on with you for that whole day, you need to be on for that hour. Yeah. And you have to be a gregarious alert in the, in the present moment version of yourself and on the ball. And if you're having a bad day or if you're tired or if you're sick, there's kind of no hiding on TV, especially now in HD. People are going to see through it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I came to, I mean, I, I had no business being on that show. I had no television background going into it. And I was on it basically because of Regis and Michael Davies, who, you know, worked with Regis and, and put the show together. And um, I, you know, the thing that I vastly underestimated about television was just sort of that kind of like, 
exhaustion afterwards, you know, and I wasn't doing a lot. I wasn't expected to do anything except maybe say like four or five things during an hour. Um, but you would feel actually winded, like you had a physical event at the end of the thing. And I remember like I would finish these shows and we'd be walking off our set and I'd like take the little IFB earpiece off and I'd like unbutton my tie and like, you know, wander back to the dressing room and I'd look out the window and reaches his town car would be blasting down the street. And I was like, that's how you stay in TV for 60 years. It's like, he's just a professional. He does it. He hits his mark and he's gone. And he does not sit around and like decompress and do like the postmortems and stress out like the rest of us. He was a different kind of creature altogether. Yeah, that energy is really unique. Magic Johnson was like that. Was it? We, yeah. we could do like an hour long pregame show, go back in the back, eat, come out for halftime, and he's just, and he's back on, come off, come out after the game, boom, he flipped the switch. Meanwhile, I'm like a carcass. And, uh, <laughs> And he could just do it. And I think Regis was like that too. I think there's just certain people that um, just flip the switch. You're on, you're going. I mean, they say they're parallel in sports. Like, you know, it's like, you know, the great, great athletes are, you know, they're not overthinking it. They're going out and they're reacting. They're being impulsive in the moment and they're instinctive. And maybe there's something to it with television. I mean, my limited experience with television, I'm convinced that the best people at it, you know, Katie was kind of, you know, at the early stage of his, her career, but you could clearly see that in her. Yeah. Um, you can't really put your finger on precisely what it is, but they have that ability to connect through a camera and not get unnerved by the moment and build that kind of bond with an audience. And 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 uh, I, the, the people who can do that genuinely are rare. There are a hell of a lot of people on TV. There probably never been more people on TV now, but in terms of people who can just actually have that kind of like through line career mm -hmm. where they do it again across generations, I mean, that's what made him so exceptional. And that's why like people like Letterman loved him, you know, like, you know, Regis, the loss of Regis is not just like the loss of like, you know, an individual, but like he is connective tissue to a whole other era of television, you know, a whole right. other era of entertainment and entertainers and stuff, you know, and I think Letterman adored the fact that Regis was the second banana to Joey Bishop and that Regis, you know, had sung on television with Bing Crosby. I mean, Bing Crosby, that kind of stuff. I mean, how you can't even make it up. I remember Regis telling me a story about he'd gone to dinner. He's like, I went out to dinner with your friend, Dave. <laughs> Not my friend, but, you know, I certainly <laughs> idolize Letterman. But the, 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 the dinner table was uh, Regis, Dave, Rickles, and Steve Martin. Wow. <laughs> That's a four top. <laughs> I would just hide. Jesus. I imagine. Well, you know, the, the Letterman piece of it, Letterman always used to say how he was a broadcaster. Yes. That was how he would describe himself. He's like, I started as a broadcaster in the seventies and I still feel like, you know, on my show, I'm, that's ultimately what I am. Those are the people I grew up watching. And Regis was like that too. He was just a broadcaster. I, I don't know if, there are people like that anymore because I, I don't know how you would, what would be the career arc that led to you quote unquote being a broadcaster who's now talent. Right. And also you had these, you know, sort of uh, starts in the boondocks. I mean, Dave was a weatherman, right. You know, and you grew yeah. up in the, the um, weirdness of, of, of local television. I mean, like think of the people who have gotten those shows in recent years. I mean, Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers were famous people before they got their late night talk shows and they 
could really hit the ground running because they had thousands of hours prior to doing this. And like, right. Dave's like everything that made Dave, Dave and everything that made Regis, Regis, I think was that kind of idiosyncratic background that was like really not, you know, being a famous person for a really long part of their lives. Or somebody like Kimmel who gets thrown into the job and over a course of a couple of years gets the reps and now is a quote unquote broadcaster, but started out as a radio guy, you know, and you kind of get thrown in the fire and you learn how to do it. Regis is learning how to do it. You know, he's in these different morning shows. There was one part, I, there was so much about his story I didn't know where at one point he has the LA show or the San Diego show, one of them, but on Saturday nights, he's flying to St. Louis (laughs) to host a St. Louis late night show just for people in St. Louis. And then you would fly back to do his LA show. I'm like, what the fuck? And this was like in the early eighties. And by the way, this was continuing years later when I worked with him, you know, he'd be doing this sports show for Fox. He'd be doing it four or five days a week. And then you'd say, well, how was your weekend? He's like, well, me and Joy did two shows. We played Toronto and we played Montreal. You know, they would do two song and dance, like, you know, husband and wife banter and song shows. I mean, he was a crooner in addition to this. Um, And yeah, I mean, he's, the idea of what fame is in 2020 is so different than what fame for Regis Philbin was. And it's very hard to sort of like imagine someone is going to reach a point in their lives where they have that kind of just cultural uh, penetration. Like he's just, everybody knows who Regis is there. No one ever went on Regis's show, but now who's Regis again? Like everyone just knew him. There was no explainer happening. They didn't have to explain what this guy was. I mean, he just was, you know, the, this this institution. The only thing I can compare it to, a bunch of years ago, I went to a, I went to a Brooklyn Nets game with Larry King. Mm. Another long time. That's a good comparison, yeah. But nobody doesn't know who Larry King is. Like, you might have an opinion about him one way or the other, but everyone knows, he's got 100% recognition, pretty much. I mean, maybe there's a generation now under 25 that doesn't know who Larry King is. But there is a pretty significant 50-year demo that knows everything about him. Um, I think Millionaire, I just don't think the amount of people that were watching that show at its peak, you're talking like 30, 35 million people, you know? And now that's like the Super Bowl and that's it for what kind of number or some Adam Sandler movie on Netflix. But uh, I think when you think about that level of fame for just a broadcaster slash host, probably not seeing it again. And it's a really interesting story how they fucked that show up too, where it was like a huge success and they didn't really have anything for the slate. And I think it's something even in Iger's book, like he talked about, like they kind of just needed to put it on every night because otherwise they're going to potentially be in fourth place. And they basically bastardized the show and extracted every ounce they could get out of it and ruined a show that probably could have been on for five years at the level it was on or close to it, you know? We're, we're forgetting another ingredient of Regis's uh, late blooming. And it was, this man was paid like unbelievably. Oh yeah. He was and like he, 20 million a year just for millionaire, right? I think so. And then another like, you know, 10 figure deal for, for live. I mean, he was yeah. just really, really making a lot of money at an age when most people are out of the genre. It's incredible. Well, it's also interesting that it was Regis and Kathy Lee 
they somehow caught lightning in a bottle a second time with Kelly and then Regis eventually leaves and Kelly's able to keep that franchise. So that franchise evolves three times. And then I think they would have thought, I guess, Strahan, but then Strahan leaves. So I don't, I don't know if it'll keep evolving the way it has, but just the fact that that show basically for 35 years now has been relatively intact or felt familiar in some way is really hard to yeah. do. And, 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 and its success also corresponded with what happened in news, which was that the morning became this like hugely significant day part. And like today, good morning, America, those became these juggernauts. He's like high earning, like, you know, entertainment slash news shows. And they were huge vessels. And so like when you had that kind of lead in, and they got that tonal shift right on live, right? After you got through Good Morning America, which was, you know, had a lot of light stuff, but also had some serious stuff. You weren't going to get buried in like news headlines on live. It was a nice sort of palate cleanser and stuff like that. And they figured that tone out perfectly. And you met him because he liked your column and he reached out to you? I think that, yeah, I was, <laughs> I, he was a journal reader. And I think I originally, I reached out to him because I wanted to go play tennis with him. You know, he played uh, on the Notre tennis team and he, uh, you know, he coasted that famous Advil commercial where he played tennis with Joy. Um, but he, uh, you know, it kept getting canceled for, he had a bad knee, a bad elbow. He had a tree fall down in his court in Connecticut. And then I ended up going to play tennis with him at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, oh wow! Beach. And this is like 2011, 2012, like you know when Trump was just the Trumpster. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was what uh, that was my introduction to the guy, and it was everything you would imagine it would be. It was like Regis, like being Regis on the tennis court, and like yelling and throwing his racket and saying he was bored and all that kind of great stuff. And then he pushed for you to be on the TV show. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, like he had reached out and said like, you know, uh, we're doing this show and I want you to go meet with these people. And this was Michael Davies's team. And I just figured it was like a favor to Regis that they would sit and listen to this jackass from the wall street journal for 20 minutes. And it evolved into being on the show. And at first I thought I was like, Oh, I'd show up once in a while to like tell them about finance or something, but it evolved into a full-time show. And I don't know if you, Remember, but there were 795 people on the panel of Crowd Goes Wild. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, I mean, it looked like the Supreme Court up there. It was just one of the more bizarre experiences ever. But I, you know, listen, I had no business being there and I loved it. It was, it, I, I never would have gotten that opportunity if it weren't for him. The lesson, as always, is don't put more than four people on any sort of studio show. I mean, what is the number? I kind of feel it's two. I mean, I, I, I think four is hard. Three, I always felt like for studio, like doing sports, I thought three was the best. Because three, you can, everybody's involved. Everybody's getting shots off. I think for like an opinion show, you really only need two. There's a reason PTI is the most successful of any sports show ever. It's two people. You don't need a third person on that show. You're firing back and forth. You're playing off each other. That's how it should go. When when you get to five, it's just, I, and (laughs) having been on those shows with different numbers, I remember there were a couple of times when we would have a half hour show with five people on it for NBA. And it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> it just becomes a race to get your 20 second point off, you know? Yeah. And then it, if somebody else goes for a minute and it's a three minute segment, it's like, well, everyone else is screwed now. I, I never understood why the producers didn't understand like how cumbersome that was. Yeah. I, I, and you still see it, especially on like cable news, like after like oh an my God. night. And I'm like, 
Anderson Cooper's like got 12 people around him. And I'm like, who thinks this is a good idea? Certainly not Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper's not like, you know, it'd be great if I could throw to 12 different people in a 20 minute segment. Could that, could we, could we make that happen? Like, I just don't get it. I would argue the host, it actually benefits the host because he's in complete control at that point. Because somebody true. finishes, it has to go back to the host, then they throw it to the second person, then it comes back to the host, and he's always controlling it. Whereas if it's three people, four people, it become a conversation, people start audibling, doing whatever, and then he, you know, so the host is always the big winner with that. We, when we used to do the, when I did the draft two years, it was so geared toward the host. And it was like, they didn't really want any interaction at all. They wanted it specifically pick, host talks, Billis, 45 seconds, me and Jalen kind of ad-libbing off Billis back to the host. One camera shot. The more one camera shots of the host, you know how, uh, how, you know how of a host show it is. When the host is, is turning and looking at the second camera, that's when you know. But I, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about with Regis and Kelly and Regis and Kathy Lee. Like that format of just two people shooting the shit. People had been trying that for 40 years and then they finally cracked it. And it was the best way to do it by basically ad-libbing, trusting each other and not doing too much pre-production and just going. Right. And not show-offing. You know, they, they would never, you know, they haven't, you know, Hugh Jackman's here, but, you know, it's like whether or not they saw the movie, it was probably a 5% chance, right? They were yeah. going deep on that. You know, they was like, Hugh, what'd you do last night? You know, that kind of thing. Right. And it was very sort of casual. And they did that kind of thing where they integrated, um, uh, Gelman, the producer, Michael Gelman into the show, he became a character on the show. And like, you know, you see that in Letterman too, that Letterman's whole sort of like backstage crew became part of the on-camera life of the show too, in really funny ways. And like, I don't know. I just, all Stern stuff- was the other one. Stern, Letterman and Regis were the three that figured it out. Right. How to, how to make the supporting people, the peripheral people became just characters. Right. Right. And it was smart. And a little, and a little tension isn't a bad thing. You know, I think that that too. A little. I bit could of- never, I could never totally figure out Gelman. <laughs> it's just like Regis almost needed a foil. But anyway, it's story for another time. Uh, Jason Gay, um, sorry about your friend. Good to see you. We you haven't been on the pod in a while. I hope uh, I hope you're staying safe out there in the tri-state area. I've been enjoying the comms. I really like to Regis com. Go check it out. Uh, if you're listening out there, go Google it. If you if you missed it, it was good to see you. Hope all is well. Appreciate it, Bill. Thank you. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks to CC and Ryan. Thanks to Jason. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Thanks to FanDuel. Thanks to the rewatchables. Go listen to Ghost on that uh, on that feed if you want to hear uh, us talk about a 30-year-old movie that made $505 million. How is that even possible? I will have one more podcast on Thursday. We'll be putting up after the Clippers-Lakers game because I definitely want to play off that one. And then we're going to three days a week starting on Sunday. Russell and I are back. So get ready for that one. Enjoy the rest of the day.